How are you? Uh, the whole hour this evening is devoted to Leonard Bernstein. Hearing Leonard Bernstein, the maestro, you think of someone who's protean in his giftedness and of course his generosity of his spirit has enriched us all. He always speaks of delight, wonder, joy and music, which leads us to today. In one of your essays, you spoke of a strange time, the 20th century, where something that is lacking when a new composition is written by a composer. In the old days, you say there, there was a sense of anticipation and acceleration. Today it's more of a, what's this guy gonna do? Especially in music theater. I think I was talking about musical theater in Italy, what is now known as WAP opera. Uh, I mean, uh, the advent of a new Puccini opera or a new Verdi opera was a cause for enormous excitement and speculation. And then once it had been premiered, was the talk of every breakfast, lunch, and dinner for the next several weeks. Uh, that doesn't happen much anymore. It happens about the same old Italian operas as sung by, or in a new production by Zeffirelli or Anna Moffo or whoever it was, Scotto sang Musetta. People will argue about that a lot at lunch. But the new works don't seem to cause any anticipation and very few of them cause any aftermath of excitement. It used to be the same thing with um, in a rather more restricted uh, societal way with the, the advent of a new Brahms symphony or a new Bruckner symphony or a new Wagner opera, certainly. Even uh, Mahler, I mean, that time too. And right up into the 20th century, into Mahler. But by Mahler's time, I think most people were convinced they had had it. They'd had the great ones. Mahler was not considered great in his time at all. It took him 50 years and a very hot PR campaign by me on his 100th birthday. I know, you had a lot to do with it. To um, sort of get him you on the board. In a way, you were his Mendelssohn. As he was to Bach, you were to and Mahler. Except I didn't have to go discover the pieces. They were all there. And most of them had been played by somebody or other. Bruno Walter was his great disciple, and of course he was one of my masters, uh, but he didn't play many. He didn't, for example, play the ninth Mahler symphony until he himself was in advanced years. He was afraid to. It was so complicated and long, and audiences walked out, so the traditionally walked out. What do you now you can't get a seat when you... What do you think explains this, this change? that from that anticipation, excitement, high moment of some new work to show me, or whatever it is. So it was sort of a challenge. There's almost a slight touch of meanness to it. Well, it came over into our time, was transferred to uh, Broadway theater, which was sort of our equivalent of what used to be the excitement about a new Mozart opera or Wagner or Verdi or Brahms Symphony. Um, Actually, the symphonic age is more or less over, and that ended with Mahler, Sibelius, Shostakovich, a few epigonist names like that. But we did have a phenomenon slightly resembling the, the uh, Italian opera craze um, on our own Broadway. There was 
just as much excitement in, in the Depression year of 1932 about Of the I Sing mm -hmm. as there was about Traviata, I'm sure. But it, there, it was much more commercially oriented, and is. And one of the problems with the Broadway musical, which I was at once so, at one time, so excited about as a, an equivalent of a Mozart Siegspiel and eventually a kind of American opera that we could develop out of our own roots, namely our own kind of pop music, and our own know-how. There's a special kind of American take on musical theater that we have taught the world. Mm -hmm. Nobody else really knew how to do that. Musical comedy, including like American contribution. Everything that came out of vaudeville, the burlesque show, of the American musical comedy. I did a big television show on this, which um, way, way back, uh, 30 years ago, one of my first television shows on Omnibus. And there's a script of it which you might be interested in reading. It's called The American Musical Comedy. And toward the end of it, we were up to South Pacific in those days. That's as far as we had come. Yeah. And I had traced it from the origins, which were something called the Black Crook, back in the 19th century. The 19th century right. musical. That was our first American yeah. musical, which was started by accident through a combination of a stranded ballet company and a lousy melodramatic company, which got together to save their skins and formed an American musical, you see. And it, with South Pacific, we had developed something that was almost operatic. I was very excited about it. And toward the end of that show, I dared to prophesy a little bit based on the double monologue from South Pacific, which is quite operatic in its uh, tone, and yet completely American and simple and not phony and doesn't have any sort of mock operatic heroics or anything. And I dared to prophesy that something great would come out of this that we could call American opera. And I tried to do my bit for it. I did Candide that year, that very year I was writing it, and West Side Story. They both came out two years later. Don't they come close? And since then, I have not yeah. been able to touch it. Yeah, I know I you, you speak of a certain disenchantment. Too, but, oh, but, wow. Uh, because it's it's become so commercial that one yeah. uh, people are afraid to take risks anymore. And God knows West Side Story was an enormous risk, as was Candide. West right? Side Story, West Side Story. That's after you did the Omnibus show. You spoke of South mm -hmm. Pacific, which was a step. West Side Story was a huge step because here was almost in dance, you know, dance in the fullest sense of musical, you know. As well. Plus and a wonderful and, and book, and your, which and is... of course, your music, see. And then, of course, Candide. Don't underrate the book yeah. of West Side Story. Everybody seems to leave that part out, and I think Arthur Lawrence gets a very poor deal in that. He wrote one of the really greatest and most succinct, most self-sacrificing, and yet poetic books of any music line now, I know. Now, you working with Arthur Lawrence on a huge theme? Uh, what might have been an American opera on the theme of freedom called Alarms and Flies. Mm -hmm. Golly, how do you know that? I don't know. I know a little about you, it. You've <laughs> been not know about Leonard Bernstein. Uh, but I mean, that's really doing your homework, man. 
I had almost forgotten. I mean, if you had asked me the name of that thing I was doing with Arthur, I couldn't have remembered alarms and excursions, whatever it was. Alarms and flourishes. I'm reading some of your essays. Alarms and flourishes. That's a theme, isn't it? Oh, it was a tremendous idea, and we just couldn't make it. It was uh, based on charm, was the idea, and it was to have been very funny and to to have taken place in a mythical dukedom or principality or kingdom or something like that. And uh, somehow it just didn't come to fruition. I don't know why. We're both fairly talented people. Well, and but I'm thinking just, uh, Trouble in Tahiti. I know you think of that as a light, a lighter work. Not yet, at all. I yet, think of it as a very sad piece. A sad piece. Which is all dressed up in jazzy. Oh no! I, I meant you think of you it, it, from your essay. I may misinterpret. It. You didn't take it too seriously as one of your more serious pieces of music. Yet well, I, because it's I only forty minutes long. It. Yeah. It's a one actor. It's in seven scenes. It has no plot. Well, but you? I take it very seriously formally for one thing because it is really an opera, yeah. in the That's sense that everything gets sung from beginning to end. It chickens out only in the sense that. There isn't a real plot in the Trovatore sense, you know, the false duke comes in disguise and brings his army to Weren't you working on a sequel to that? Weren't you thinking of a sequel? I have, uh, with a collaborator, Stephen Wadsworth, and we've written an, an enormous opera called A Quiet Place, in which is embedded Trouble in Tahiti as flashbacks. In other words, it's a, it's a boat. Uh, superficially, anyway, it's about what happens to those people of Trouble in Tahiti, that couple that was so unhappily married back there in 1951 or yeah. two, 30 years later. And again, Dinah and Sam. Dinah and Sam, good man. And they, um, and what has happened to them and children and so on. And a lot has happened. And at a certain point, there are reminiscent flashbacks. Which are which recall Trouble CD in its entirety. Now, I thought before hearing the Prelude, one of American opera. I know that you admired Mark Blitzstein very much. And Cradle will rock. Deeply. Often comes up. Cradle will rock. Not en often enough, I'll tell you. His name comes up not often enough. And in a sense, he's one of the fathers of our the so-called know-how I referred to before. A very highly original genius who's uh, had several problems. I mean, he was uh, a little bit perhaps too stuck on the... Brecht Vile. That's, you said that, I didn't, yeah, on I the Brecht Vile style. I wasn't going to say that. I was going to say on the working class problem on which you can't be stuck enough, because uh, from the point of view of the problem and the immensity of it, on the other hand, uh, stylistically and musically, you can get stuck. He had his highest moment with the one you just mentioned, called Cradle The Cradle of Rock. Rock, which was 1937. And that was I was his, in it in Chicago. 
You've been in it? I was editor what daily. Did you have you been editor to Honolulu? Daily. I, I would have guessed that. Where your boredom would be banned. Have you been to Honolulu? Let's hear you sing that. Where your boredom would be banned. Bid your family to the Lulu. Sail away. Sail away to that fair land. That's just the aisle for you. And you'd have your work too. Come on, what's the next line? Chocolate arms are open. No, no, a little scribbling on your father's journal. Oh, nothing ever happens over there. Oh, yeah, that's that's. Son, they say the climate's fresh and vernal. Yeah, that's great. You could learn to play the ukulele. Oh, that's Sister Mister, yeah. Now, Junior, listen to Editor Daily. That's you. That's me. Have you been to Honolulu? Ah, the women nice down there. Chocolate arms are open like a. Chocolate arms are open like a flower. <laughs> How the hell do you spell Honolulu? <laughs> Junior's going to be a journalist. <laughs> I know every note and word of the Cradle Rock. In fact, I know every note and word almost of everything yeah. he wrote. And, uh, well, now, he's never quite made it in the, in the biggest sense of the word. He was always broke, and he always had to be subsidized. As a matter of fact, when he died, or more properly, was murdered in uh, Martinique. He was in the course of writing an opera for the Met, which had been commissioned with a lot of push from a lot of us. It was about Sarko Vanzetti in that whole case. And uh, I know that the Met was very relieved not to get it, that it never did get finished, Mm -hmm. because there were lots of people on the board of that Met who were more than anxious about the subject matter. And uh, how the devil did we ever get this guy, Blitzstein, commissioned to do this yeah. communist opera about these two Dago Reds called yeah. Sarko and Vanzetti? How do you feel about uh, Regina, his adaptation of the Lillian Hill? Well, the I, I think it's a masterpiece, flawed, a flawed masterpiece, that is, with flaws that I no, I could myself correct if I could only find the time. In fact, when he died, I made an oath that I would. And I still haven't found the time to make the version of Regina that I know I could make because I followed his progress through the whole um, backing and filling and changes. And of course, he had a lot of trouble with Lillian on whose play The Little Foxes it was based. who disapproved of almost any change he would make. And, <laughs> and of course, you have to make changes to make an opera. You have to bring in more things to sing about, more people who can sing. Yeah, I'm thinking the various facets of your career, your life, you're both composer. How do we get off Mark so fast? I think it's terribly important okay. that people know this name, because I know that I couldn't exist musically as I am if it hadn't been for Mark. And I know the same thing is true of the whole Broadway theater, but I mean the traditional and good, even establishment. The Dick Rogers of the world and uh, Hammerstein, so he had a tremendous influence on... Yeah, there's, there's one song, I'm thinking of Mark Blitzstein, the one song that opens Cradle with a Rock, and that's the Mouth song. I don't recall ever having been moved by a piece of Isn't music. Isn't that an amazing way to start it up? Yeah. Just a little girl cruising the street, standing under a lamppost, waiting for a guy to come by and singing, I'm checking home now, remember? 
call it a night. That's one of the most amazing pieces of drab simplicity made into sheer beauty that, that I can think of. It reminded me way, way before the Beatles. It reminded me of some of the Beatles songs and their drabness. She's leaving home. You know that song of the Beatles yeah. and how awfully drab it is, and how beautiful it is at the same time. And that one, but that one lyric, uh, the other one, Nickel on the Foot, some guys, masterpiece. You wonder what it is makes people good or bad. Why? Some, some guy, guy, an ace without a doubt, turns, turns out, out to be a bastard, and the other way about. I'll tell you what I feel. It's just the nickel under the heel. That's what makes a difference. That was one of the highlights of Mark Blitzstein's, I guess he'd call it American folk opera, Cradle of Rock, Nickel Under Your Foot. And Leonard Bernstein, of course, was, le was leading into it. And after this message, we'll resume with uh, more of his thoughts about music. Resuming with a conversation, an early morning conversation uh, some time ago with Leonard Bernstein. Just finished playing a piece from Mark Blitzstein's Cradle of Rock on the subject of Blitzstein Continued. That's the essence of Mark. Yeah. Well, you can live like hearts and flowers, and every day is a wonderland tour, and you can dream and scheme and happily put and take, take and put. But first be sure. The nickel's under your foot. Go step on someone's neck while you're taken, cut into somebody's heart while you put. That's the Brecht vial of it all. In another opera, he's the same theme, working people. No for an answer. Mm -hmm. He does song, Purest Kind of Guy, which is precisely the, the purest opera. kind of a guy. Oh, he was capable of writing ecstatically joyous music. So he is a But always music for the layman and the working man. In fact, No For An Answer was all about that. Yeah. It was a real opera, a hard, stony, severe opera about uh, Greeks who worked in a restaurant and tried to form a union. And it was intended to be heard by that kind of audience, too, as well as every other kind. Nobody had ever thought of writing operas for for Greek restaurant workers, people who washed dishes and barely spoke the language. He was a, a genius, a genius man. And I don't mean just these lyrics that we've been quoting, but the harmonies in the nickel under the foot have affected American theater music very deeply. And phrasing, the bar phrasings, phrase lengths, uh, unequal, he was very sophisticated musically. He just put it all at the service of the proletarian hearer and viewer, and that was his dedication. And he never lived to complete it in a satisfactory way. Anyway, poor Mark. I have a young composer student, a young conducting student, excuse me. I always forget what I am at any given moment, um, called Michael Barrett, extraordinarily gifted kid to whom I've, so to speak, handed on the torch of Mark Blitzstein. Mm. And he has he played the piano in that Hausman production mm. and was the music director of it. Fabulous job he did. Thinking about influences on you and all the music, I suppose we just, for the moment, hear 
a passage, say the, the prelude to Trouble in Tahiti, and of course there's a jazz aspect to it here. And if we hear this, then perhaps that theme that you were talking about last night, night before this conversation. It's very Mark-like in the sense that it's so sophisticated. It begins with a 12-tone row of all things. Nobody would ever believe it. And the modulations are pretty tough as jazz music goes. It's rather sophisticated stuff. The bar lengths, the bars are uneven, the meter keeps switching. It's not easy music. And if you look at the top of the title page at the dedication, you will find to your surprise that it is dedicated to guess who? Mark Blitzstein. Mark Blitzstein. <laughs> so we're talking now about jazz, aren't we? And at this gathering... I'm so happy to have this book. We're talking about what? What you said last night about black country and American music. Naturally, we think of spirituals, work songs, into jazz. And jazz, of course. You've done, not that you spoke of this as a Columbia album with you on jazz, some of the great artists. Yeah, I've been talking about it all my life. Last night, I think I said something new, though. New for me, I mean. Um, which is far and above the black pop tradition which comes from way back slavery days, chain gangs, blues, and hollers, and spiritual. African shouts, and then, of course, the whole Christian side of it, which is gospel and spirituals. Um, that mixture of primitivism and Christianity, which, which made black music what it was, plus the mixture with European forms and dances, shotishes and quadrilles and polkas and all the rest of it, which, in the hands of blacks, turned into something quite... But way beyond all that, uh, and even beyond the development of forms such as the blues, which is a truly classical form. I mean, it's not just a style or a mood. A blues is a classical style in iambic pentameter, by the way. That is not only continuing the tradition of the black roots of pop music, but... It takes you into the great development of this huge tree of pop music, which is now called rock, and which has emerged into one of the uh, most highly industrialized enterprises since U.S. Steel, or uh, it is probably a billion dollar industry. Billion, 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 multi-billion dollar industry. It's almost as big as cocaine. <laughs> this record business. So. What I found uh, was not only that there was a new uh, sociological level to the black jazz, rock, pop world, but I had a kind of revelation about the nature of the role the blacks have played in our history in every way and of the great American refusal, or at least reluctance, to deal with it. I mean, if you were writing a new history of the United States, because you are a historian, one of the oddest historians of our time. I mean, you're not Arthur Schlesinger, and you're not... Keep going, I like your style. All right. <laughs> professor Terkel, are you a professor? <laughs> There's one, Around 40 minutes from now. One fantasy. <laughs> Uh, that's, you know, now and then, send them back to Africa. And I thought, what would American music uh, culture be like if there were no black people here? Fantasy. 
there's uh, a start for your yeah. professorial history yeah. of the United States. Well, that's a great fantasy. Yeah. What Imagine, like? what would it have been like? It used to be one of our great racist slogans, and still is in many quarters, I'm afraid. Well, if you don't like it, why don't you go back where you came from? Meaning Hungary, Poland, Russia, um, Italy, Ireland, Africa. If you don't, like, there used to be a pop song. Of course, you're too young to remember no, this, does. I'm going to chop you by 10 years. There ahead. was a highly patriotic pop, pop song. I wish there were a piano here, because I'd oh, sing God. it for you at a piano. I wish there were a piano here. It was called, if you don't, like it no, it's called Don't Bite the Hand That's Feeding You. And it went if you don't like your Uncle Sammy, then go back to your home or the sea. How do you like that lyric? Yeah. To the land from whence you came, another enormous solecism. To the land from whence you came, whatever be its name, but don't be unfaithful to me. This is Uncle Sammy speaking. If you don't like the stripes in old glory, if you don't like the red, white, and blue, then don't be like the dog in the story. Don't bite the hand that's feeding you. If you don't like <laughs> your Uncle Sammy. It was exactly yeah. in that style, George M. Cohen. Yeah. If you don't like your Uncle Sammy, then get the hell out of here. Who needs you? But the whole point was that this was a country to which you could come and be free not to like your Uncle Sammy and criticize him, while at the same time you loved your country. All these millions of immigrants who came here came out of love for this country. I know my father did, my mother. Um, my father came at the age of 16, cleaned fish under the Brooklyn Bridge for a buck a week, and whatever it was. My mother came at the age of six, and worked at the cotton mills in Lawrence, Mass., where I was born. You were born uh, in Lawrence? Yep. That's where the slogan was, bread and roses. Bread and roses, and it's still number uh, Z on the list of acceptable cities in this country, by the way. It's the lowest still to this day. They, they did a wonderful thing on my 65th birthday, which was only last you know, two birthdays ago. They turned it into a, a celebration in the city of Lawrence. So I turned down every city in the world where they wanted to have grand things with grand philharmonics and opera companies and stuff. And I went back to this little mill town with my mother. And millions of people turned out. We turned it into a day for um, peace and nuclear disarmament. You're talking about something I call continuity. And if ever there were at the moment a break <coughs> in continuity is now, and this may apply to music as well, you're talking about flow, aren't you, of a, a vision, of a dream, and somewhere along the line it was fragmented, or the cord was cut. This is in, you, you and see? why? Why do you think, Professor <laughs> of History, which I have now dubbed you, because you are a historian. Oh, I don't know. I'm just a musician. You know, no, I just work here. I'm thinking of high technology. I'm thinking of the daily banalities that inundate us. The young kid. It's not. Keep them. saying it. It's all one thing. Keep yeah, saying it. I'll, I'll tell you what it is. Yeah, a combination of this plus Cold War itself plus uh, 
daily, I think a daily inundation of banalities through TV itself, that, not to blame that, because it could be a tremendous um, instrument for education, as Omnibus, the program you were on, was at the time. We first learned about jazz and its connection with classical music, so we're talking about possibilities, dream deferred. What does all that add up to, the, all right. your TV? And all that. You've left out a few, but yeah. you keep saying banalities, and you keep saying... Well, it's banality, uh, that's a key word in my vocabulary. Mediocrity. Yeah. What it's adding up to is passivity. And what we've lost is that drive. You left out a couple of significant things, like dope. Instant gratification. These things go with television. I mean, you push the button, Instant gratification. That is a form of infantilism, which we all know about. Dope satisfies the same thing. And living in a world where everybody born since 1945 is born into a world where they automatically accept the existence of the possibility, the minute-to-minute possibility of planetary destruction, has turned out a couple of generations since then that are completely different from any generation that have lived, especially in this country. Why bother? Why knock your brains out if in five minutes the whole thing can blow up? Push the button. Get your instant gratification on television. If you don't like what they're showing, push another button and you see something else. Passivity. We come to something else you said in one of your essays on music and life. That epochs ago, eras ago, and other times, other centuries, the learned person, or generally educated person, not only could read words, he could read music. Mm-hmm. And so you're talking about music being played in the It's home. part of literacy. It's part of basic literacy. This is why so, is it not? I mean, I don't think anybody will disagree with the fact that uh, music is one of our basic and deepest levels of communication. Uh, You and I could talk for hours using words and maybe you could become poetic and spurt a few metaphors out and maybe I could and we could suddenly be talking on another level which would be poetry. But we can never communicate on so deep a level as if we sang to each other even if it's the nickel under the foot or if you don't like your Uncle Sammy or whatever it is. But, I mean, musical communication occurs on a very profound level. Therefore, why is it not necessarily included as a language that can be read just as every other communicative language is taught? When I went to elementary school, I was taught to read music by a certain simplified solfeggio system. Um, But I guess I was especially attracted to it because I was musical. But it seems to me everybody in the class could do it. And we we did some fine things. It wasn't a very special elementary school. It was just the William Lloyd Garrison School in Roxbury, Massachusetts, where public public school. And uh, of course, the minute I got into uh, the great school, which was my high school, the Boston Latin School, uh, they wouldn't hear of music. I mean, it was compulsory Latin and yeah. 
Greek and... Uh, You're really talking about... Uh, high intellectuality. Sense of wonder. You spoke nothing when people sing together. It's another plane, more intimate than talking together. And more profound. More profound. Way so to communicate. You and education are educating in music. And what you convey, you know, one of your books, Joy of Music, Sense of Delight. I suppose that has, to some extent, diminished, as you describe the world. Not in pop music, but in other aspects of music. Yes, Sense I, of wonder, I suppose, is another way of putting it. I think we have a new little hope. I mean, if we can manage to survive at all, yeah. which is up for grabs, so it's your bet against mine. If we survive it all, I think we have uh, an interesting period coming up, a whole new bunch of young, serious composers who are serious to the extent that they can write pop music and non-pop music, whatever that is. I call it all serious music, and I abhor the term classical. I won't use that. Because certainly jazz is serious music. Yes, and... Uh, Porgy and Bess is a classical opera, and and certain Beatles songs are classics. So I I cannot make this phony distinction between classical and pop music, but there is a generation of people coming up that whose roots you could trace back to Mark Litstein and before that, again bringing mm -hmm. our conversation around. Um, if we can live through this present ghastliness, if we can find some kind of road to disarmament and some end to the madness of, of uh, an arms race, I think we're going to have a very interesting kind of blend of music. But this depends largely on education, as does everything, as you know. You know, West Side Story is a highly critical piece of America. The Russians do it all the time. Of course, I never get a nickel from it because they pirate it. They, they steal it and they do it. They translate it into their own language and change the lyrics ad lib uh, and make it much more critical of America. In fact, they, they make it critical of America from their point of view. I can't control this at all. But what they don't understand is that the the great value of a piece like West Side Story is that we live in a country where we can do that. And that's what we've got to preserve. And we can do that only by education. We have to make education the keynote again, just as it was with um, Jefferson, the, uh, the key to everything. Now, I was so shocked the other day. Um, I went out to Brazil for Carnival in Rio, first time in my life. And the day before I left, which was the last time I looked at the New York Times, I was shocked out of my wits to see a front page story uh, in which the mayor of New York, our old friend Ed Koch, was quoted as saying, what we need is more cells, more prisons. At any price, we've got to enlarge our prison system. And then there's a subhead, even if it's at the expense of the school system. 
if we have to take it out of the school budget, we'll take it out of the school budget and we will make more prison cells because that's the only way we're going to save our city. This is, to my mind, uh, talk worthy of a chimpanzee. I mean, it's so mindless. It is so missing the whole point of why there is such a need for prison cells and why kids of five are dealing dope on the streets and, and dropping out of school. Because we don't have enough money for good schools and for education and the way to to make experiments such as this school in Chicago is making the American Concertary Music, which is an incredible model school from this point of view, in terms of what it wants to do and these the projects that are now beginning to take form. Again, we come back to education. This theme connects, does it not, with musical education as an integral part of the overall education. Not, well, I think not it is a side item. It's not a side item at all, no, because it is one of the ways in which kids can learn about forms, about disciplines, in a joyful way, yeah. uh, not simply learning equations, and by participating in it. In other words, they can do the old Thomas Dewey thing of learning by doing, education by experience, uh, which we know is the basic way to John Dewey. educate. John. So, and we can enrich kids' lives to a point where they don't want to drop out. But it takes a lot of doing. It takes a lot of people to want to do that, a lot of enthusiasm, and a lot of money, and it, and it takes a, a countrywide political point of view, a societal point of view about saving our kids, uh, which is uh, the opposite of that societal point of view that says build more jails for them. You know, you, you use the That's phrase... That's not going to save anything. No, but you use the phrase of the joy. And I know you're being called, because, by the way, you've given me almost an hour of your time. This is Leonard Bernstein in the middle of a, only a million and a half. Uh, well, it's just that I have to make to it a plane. Oh, you make the plane. Well, this is by way of so. thanking you very much for a beginning. <laughs> it's oh. incredible what you've covered. And let's end. You spoke of joy. Let's end with fancy phrase. I like your choice of, of, of materials, musical materials, because they are all from my youth, so it makes me feel young again. All right. Much Fancy Free right. was one of my very first pieces. I was 25 years old. You're I wrote 25. That. Mm. We'll end with that. And Great. Thank you very much. Well, I've had a wonderful time with you, Studs, as I expected to, but I didn't thank know it would be this good.